Psalm 114. When Israel came out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of foreign tongue, Judah became God's sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled, the Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. Why was it, O sea, that you fled? O Jordan, that you turned back. You mountains that you skipped like rams, you hills like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Judah, who turned the rock into a pool, the hard rock into springs of water. An eight verse psalm, and it still runs to half an hour. How does that happen? Let's give thanks and ask, ask God to be with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this particular word, which is the, um, the, other, the centerpiece of our old covenant salvation message. Lord, help us to, to, to get our minds around what is happening here in the Exodus scene. Help us to catch the tone of this psalm. Help us, Lord, to recommit ourselves to our placing our faith squarely on the Lord Jesus Christ, who saves us from our sin. Amen. Well, when I, I listen to the, the claims of the many defenders of tolerance around these days as they attack the Bible and, and those who stand by its precepts, I'm quickly reminded that we as a nation have largely moved away and rejected our Judeo-Christian heritage. It's no longer okay, it seems, to hold a biblical view or agree with the Bible, stand on anything that might give offence to somebody or some, some group at some stage. So therefore it's become hateful and unkind and, and lately breach of contract to suggest that God would outlaw a whole range of socially acceptable behaviours and instead to, main, to, make, to maintain that the Bible doesn't condemn anyone actually, it's just fundamental people who've got, who are reading it wrong. So in its grand quest to protect the rights of anyone who might possibly be offended, hurt or upset, our modern enlightened society decries anybody who holds a contrary opinion. Except themselves, of course, who are free to give expression to their own hateful opinion of fundamental Christianity. And so we're seeing a vastly different response from society today to that from this psalm as it examines God's activity in saving people. A vastly different response. Psalm 114, rather than criticising God for having the audacity to suggest that the Israelites were slaves that needed rescuing and saving, Psalm 114, it said, recognises their plight and marvels at the mighty hand of God in putting an end to four centuries of misery in servitude. So really this psalm is asking a great question, so where have we gotten it so wrong? Instead of taking offence at the gospel's diagnosis of our state before God, we should be jumping for joy and relief that God in his power and mercy has reached into our situation and rescued us by Christ's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sin. We should be like the mountains and the seas who could not stay still in the face of God's tremendous mercy. So let's get into the psalm. Verse 1, it rather unusually captures it or puts it, portrays it as that Israel came out of Egypt, as if they simply decided that enough was enough and it was time to go. We're not welcome here. 
It reads, Israel, when Israel came out of, of Egypt. Unusual in that we all know there was an extreme measure of drama involved with Israel's departure, that it took the death of the firstborn of Egypt to finally force Pharaoh's hand and to make him submit to God. And even then that he reneged and sent his army to stop to bring them back and that the waters of the Red Sea miraculously receded, allowing the fugitives to pass through and that that same water swept back over and drowned the the entire Egyptian army as they continued the chase. That an entire nation of men, women, the elderly and the young children, livestock, possessions and plunder all were delivered safely to the other side. So at first, one, at first glance, verse 1 seems to be glossing over the, the amazing detail of what is the central act of redemption in the, under the Old Covenant when Israel came out of Egypt. It sounds more like an orderly emigration, doesn't it, than, a, than the emancipation, the dramatic emancipation of generations of slaves. It's an interesting tone. So what exactly is the tone of this psalm? Psalm 114 is a poetic celebration of the miraculous events of the Exodus and was written as, a, as one of a group of worship psalms. It was written uh, for use in the temple. It was written so that God's work of salvation of his people might never be forgotten but constantly be reminded, be remembered by the generations of people that were there and that, and that followed on. There's a scene in the old Robin Williams movie, The Dead Poet Society, it's an old one, it's been around for him, put that, that slide up, where William's character, who's a, he's a poetry teacher at a prestigious Ivy League uh, boys' high school, has called a timid boy up to the front of the class to read out his homework assignment. And this boy is very shy and he doesn't believe he's got any poetry in him and his assignment has been to write some poetry and bring it and have it ready to read out in the class. So the boy's a bit shy and he's very nervous. He's a very nervous person anyway because he's got a huge set of shoes to, to fill and you know, family traditions to live up to. And he hasn't done the homework because he doesn't think he's got any poetry in him. So William's character brings him up and puts him on the... There's a bit of a dice up the front end, puts him up there, and the guy's, you know, the poor kid's... He's nervous, doesn't know what's going to happen next. And uh, the, the teacher points to a, a, a portrait on the wall of Walt Whitman... The, the great poet who's got a big shaggy beard and he looks a bit like Rasputin. He's a very craggy looking guy. And he asks him, he says, who does Uncle Walt remind you of? And the boy starts, says, a, a madman? William, Williams, Robert Williams replies, no, you can do better than that. What kind of madman? And Todd, the schoolboy, answers, a crazy madman. A, a sweaty tooth crazy madman. And Williams congratulates him and says, good work. There's a poet in you after all. Go on, close your eyes. Describe what you see. And Todd moves into the moment. He says, a, he says, a sweaty-toothed madman with a stare that pounds my brain. All the time he rumbles, truth, truth is like a blanket that always leaves your feet cold. You push it, you stretch it, it'll never be enough. And by then the classroom's gone silent because this is amazing. They're all mesmerised by this sudden poetry that Todd has composed in the moment. Then they burst into wild cheering and and as you can see in this picture, just imagine all the cheering in the background. Williams embraces Todd and whispers to him, never forget this moment. Never forget this moment. Thanks, Shelby. Never forget this. At the Passover festival, the old covenant people of God 
sang hymns like this to remember the blood on the door lintel that caused the, the angel of death to pass by their house that night, to give thanks to the Lord for their salvation, to remember their saviour, to recall the mighty deeds of God in their deliverance from slavery in Egypt, to recommit themselves to Yahweh, to never forget that moment of their great salvation. When we as the people of God today, the new, pe- new covenant people of God, meet for communion, we remember the body and blood of Christ shed for us on the cross. We humble ourselves at the enormous cost of our salvation. We recall the mighty rescue mission of the Lord God. We give praise and thanks for his wonderful mercy. And we recommit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. We never forget the cost. We never forget that moment. So this psalm is part of a, co- a collection, the, the Egyptian Hallel, the great hallelujah that was traditionally sung at the conclusion of the Passover supper. So that's the tone of the psalm. Just as who we are under the new covenant, just as we celebrate the work of, of Jesus Christ at the cross and the empty tomb as a central act of our redemption, at the Passover the Israelites, the Jews, recalled their redemption from slavery that God not only pulled them out of Egypt in in great glory and uh, miraculous deliverance, but that he set up his tabernacle among them, that the Red Sea and the Jordan River parted to let them cross, that the earth shook when God came down at Mount Sinai and at the giving of the law, that God gave them water from the rock when they were dying, when they were parched and dying in the desert. They recall that God brought Israel out of the house of bondage, the land of the foreign tongue with outstretched arm and hands held high in victory. When Israel came out of Egypt, they didn't just sneak out. It wasn't like a furtive thing. They didn't slip away clandestinely. It's a difficult word to say. Clandestinely, I think it probably ought to be. Nor were they driven away by force. According to God's purpose in redemption, they didn't belong in Egypt. And they left fairly speaking their own preserved language in full view of a a cruel oppressor who had used them barbarously. So what's this language clue here? We see here that um, in verse 1, they came out of Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of foreign tongue. So to them, the the words, the language of Egypt was still foreign to them. They never assimilated or belonged or became part of Egypt. They kept their own tongue and that tongue was always foreign to them. So after four centuries their their language could easily have died away and there's many languages where this has happened. Think think of plenty of extinct languages today and the great, obviously the the real, you know, the, the most prominent extinct language would probably be Latin in recent times. It might be used academically by botanists and librarians but it's a dead language in that no community or country uh, still retain it for everyday conversation. You've probably heard of plenty of dialects that have dwindled and disappeared in a, in a short, you know, less than a century in some cases. Uh, there's plenty of Italians who have been back after having emigrated and been in Australia for 50 or 60 years, and then they're thinking their thoughts in their mind, they're, they're thinking in Italian or their dialect, but when they go back and speak it, people scoff at it as being quaint and rather old-fashioned. No one speaks like that anymore. I haven't heard those words in a long time. Not so with the Hebrews of Israel. Even after 430 years or many generations, the language of Egypt is foreign to them, foreign to their ears. 
their thoughts, their language, their worship that they preserved and retained becomes like a down payment on the eventual day when they would be rescued. There's a wonderful old English word called an earnest. Anyone heard of the word earnest? An earnest of their salvation? It's like a snippet of what's to come. Their language is an earnest of their deliverance, their eventual deliverance. So in singing this psalm, we acknowledge and proclaim God's great power and kindness in what he did in liberating Israel and preserving them and bringing them out. And by application, us today in this, in this moment, the far-reaching salvation of our redemption by the death and resurrection of, Lord, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this psalm, the tone really, it encourages to join, for us to join the multitudes that go before us in the worship of our great God, who's redeemed us in a mighty way. Well, moving on, verse 2 reminds us of God's purpose in rescuing Israel out of Egypt, that Judah might become his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. So this is a bit of a complex idea, that a group or a people or a nation can be the dwelling place and, at the same time, the servants of God. So he's both sanctuary and dominion. Whilst God's... Uh, symbolically lived in his tabernacle, we read here that his real presence is in his people. The leading of the tribe of Israel, Judah, uh, sorry, the, the tribe of Israel represents the holy nation of God's people so that when God rescued them, they resume their role and identity as a dwelling place of God. And so when God brings them out of Egypt, he makes Judah his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. The thrust of the first verse is that Israel in captivity were aliens and they're isolated, physically removed from the land. And moving on, the aliens are now returned to the land and returned to their rightful role in relation to God. Delivered that he might resume his dwelling place and his presence amongst them. So it is a bit of a complex idea, but it fits with what we know about God going ahead of his people. God is fulfilling his purpose in bringing blessing that he promised in the Aaronic covenant that would flow through all of his people for all time and from which the Messiah would ultimately come. Verse 2 also lands the idea of God's dominion being over his people in Israel, that they would know him and honour him and serve him as Lord. Not just keep him close by like a mascot for when they you know, hold out in front of them when they march off into battle as they'd done in the past and they would do in the future, but rather they would reverence and obey him and serve him so that all the nations might know the God of Jacob. And this has always been central and, and foremost in God's purpose in blessing Israel, that they would serve him by being a living demonstration of the excellence and the kindness of the kingdom of God in front of all the nations so that they could see as they looked in from the outside. Much later on in Israel's history, when they're once again in exile as slaves in faraway Babylon, God subjected them to severe judgment because they defiled themselves and chased after foreign idols. And so apart from being judged for their sin, God is acting so that they and the nations that looked on might know that he is Lord. God sent Ezekiel at this time to, to prophesy, explaining that you know, why they were being judged that there was right that they were being judged, as we in our growth group know that they deserved it. 
But the central charge against them was that they'd, uh, they'd so badly forgotten and ill-used God that they'd become even more despicable than the nations that they were there to witness to. It's a terrible judgment. And so God judged them and then he moved to bring their judgment to an end, giving them a message of hope that they would be uh, you know, revived and saved so that the nations would know of his greatness. God's purpose was that Israel would become a dwelling place for his presence and dominion, carrying with it the, pl- the promise of blessings to all people through the ages and uh, eventually into the kingdom from which the one true king, Jesus Christ, would come. Well, moving to verse 3, the psalm's now taking on a quite a different language. Language style, instead of following the typical Exodus narrative, it begins to portray a, a rescue story of Israel in wild flourish. You know, almost crazy language, amazing language. Mountains trembling at the approach of their creator. Seas parting before the majesty and the power and the purpose of the king as he arrives to establish his, his earthly dwelling place. Mountains no longer remaining imposing in ancient silence like we picture them. You go to Blue Mountains and you just, you know, you're hit by the, the splendour of the, the silent enormity of them. Not these mountains. These mountains are animated. They're agog. Seas and rivers falling over themselves in sheer overwhelming awe. Now, this is a picture of immeasurable excitement. Nature recognising God's presence and submitting and being blown away by it all, by his will. The sea fled, the Jordan driven backwards from where it came from. If the divine presence in this moment, captured in this psalm in the way it has been, has such a compelling effect on, on these inanimate things, how much more should it have on us? How much more will it have on us? How much more inevitably will it have on all people? Can you see the day when similar things will happen, when the lion will eat with the lamb? Wonderful things, wonderful words. And every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Such is the power and the majesty of God in his moment of deliverance. Quaking mountains do have uh, more ominous implications and normally make us run for cover. And yet there are many times when the presence of God has set mountains shaking i.e. at the giving of the law in Exodus 19, mountain shook, at the death of the Lord when uh, Jesus gave up his spirit on the cross, the curtain was torn from top to bottom and the mountain shook and the graves were opened. So it's happened. It's happened on on other occasions. Matthew 27, 51 gives us a a great description where it says, the curtain was torn from top to bottom, the earth shook and the rock split. It's pretty vigorous. And then we've got pictures of mountains leaping like, like rams. Now, anyone who's worked with sheep, hands up, who's worked with sheep? One or two, okay, three. A few more, perhaps. Anyone who's worked with sheep will know that when, they, when you drive them towards a gate, okay, picture a paddock, a gate, gum tree, dog at the back, you're pushing the sheep towards the gate, what are they going to do? George, they'll pause, then one of them will jump. It'll get, get some courage up, 10 seconds of courage, and one will jump, then another one. A few will boing up just for no reason, just straight up, not over anything. It's not calculated. It's just a mind, mindless thing, but they'll, they'll leap. 
And anyone that's worked with sheep will see this every time because I always do it. It uh, happens every time you go near them, actually. So they, they pause and they spring up in the air in a well-grown, determined weather, you know, crossbred can get some serious air when it jumps and get up in the air. If it, when it makes up its mind, and I use that word with poetic licence, if that's actually what's happening, and goes through a, a gateway, it might look like a leap for joy, but in reality it's a moment of crisis where the sheep has more thoughts running through its brain than it can handle. And it's overstimulated. It's more like a knee jerk than a jump. But it, it, it creates a, a picture in the, and that's not an illustration to try to give a, a theological background to what's happening with the mountains at all, so don't go down that path. It's very descriptive, though. The mountains are leaping like rams. Hills are skipping like little lambs in response to the arrival of the Creator. It's a magnificent moment. It's a great picture. It's a wondrous response. Likewise, the psalm asks a very pertinent question. Why was it, O sea, that you fled? As if to say, how could you not? Why was it, O Jordan, that you turned back? And it gives the answers that they were powerless not to. There's no way they could remain silent, unmoved by the, 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 redemptive, the redemptive glory of the Lord. God drew near. The mountains and the seas trembled before him. Dear ones, God has come so much nearer to us than ever he did to the mountains and the seas. He's drawn so much nearer to you and me that he does the, than he does in this magnificent retelling. And why do I say that for? Because Jesus Christ is the Emmanuel who left behind the glory of heaven and took on humanity and dwelt with us, dwelt with us as a, as a person amongst people. Now think about that for a moment, the incarnate one with us. So we need to give serious contemplation to what our response to God's drawing near to us in Christ, in his person, in his work, must be. And taking our cue from the mountains and the seas in Psalm 114. That we might... Uh, as Spurgeon put it, Spurgeon wrote some lovely words and he really put some thought into this psalm uh, and he spent a lot of time in the psalms. He wrote tremendous volumes about the psalms. His words are that we need to draw back like the ocean from our sin and move like the mountains in paths of obedience to him. So God has drawn near to us in his word. He's reveal, revealing to us his character of mercy and grace. He's re- drawn near and revealed his his purpose for humanity, that we might know and be rescued and serve and worship him forever. His rescue mission, that he's reconciling the world to himself in Christ. His forgiveness, not counting people's sins against them. God has drawn near to us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's turned the rock into a pool, the hard rock into springs of water. How has God drawn near to us? God and it's so classically put in John 3.16. God has drawn near to us. He so much loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. So the big question in this psalm, the big uh, 
imperative is that we never forget and that we always remember. But the big question that flows out of the psalm is all to do with God drawing near to his people. Can you say that God has drawn near to you? Do you know it? How do you feel about the fact that God has drawn near to you? How can you know it for sure? What must your response be to God's near and intimate investment of his son into your life? What are the eternal implications of God's rescue missions for Israel in my life and my situation and what I've got to hope for? Do you know how to respond to God having drawn near to you by sending his son? We become God's friends, God's children by believing in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by confessing that we have in the past lived in opposition to him, right? It lived in opposition to his right to rule us as Lord and King. And by and uh, to respond to that by putting our, our trust in his death on the cross for our forgiveness. God has poured out his love into our hearts by his Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. When God rescues from our, us from our sin and death, our slave condition, our hearts and our futures are changed forever. Our hearts are changed from being... Uh, hard like stones, hardness of self-interest to being filled with, with his love by his Holy Spirit. God's love in our hearts softens us and changes us and refocusing, refocuses our resolve to worship and serve him rather than worshipping and serving ourselves. And like the, the living waters as they flowed from the struck stone, God sustains us as we seek to know him and follow him day by day. God sustains us how? He sustains us by his living word in the Bible, just as he sustained Israel in the wilderness after they came out of Egypt by causing sweet water to flow from the, the barren rock. God sustains his spirit, sorry, his people through his spirit, constantly ref, re, refreshing and redirecting our hearts and minds back to God and all the time bearing witness to God's great kindness, power, grace and excellence. Surely this would cause us to leap like rams, skip like lambs, submit on bended knee and reverent heart as did the ocean and orientate ourselves to his purpose as did the Jordan River as a turn back in awe of the living God. Amen.